Well, that was just perfect because we are about to uh, see a little bit of just how great our God is, how great is our Redeemer. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Actually, I've been thinking about this, and um, chapter 8 really depends on chapter 7, and I don't want to assume that chapter 7 is fresh in your mind, so I think, though the sermon's on chapter 8, I think I need to start back at chapter 7, verse 11, if you don't mind. It'd be a little bit of a lengthy reading, but I think it'll be worthwhile to, to hear the uh, important immediate context. <clears throat> so beginning at uh, verse 11 of chapter 7. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Rather, than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, this is from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, again from Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So that is the immediate context. Now here's our, our text for this morning. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is a a fairly long quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my mountain, in my covenant. So I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you for Christ and the new covenant prophesied so long ago. But yet, in time and space, in the perfect time, uh, Jesus came to redeem his people and Lord, we are among those redeemed. We are so grateful to be living in these days, the days of the reign of Christ, uh, the days of the spread of the gospel, the day of salvation. And we would proclaim that word uh, to the world in knowing for sure that Christ is ministering and Christ is building his church. So Lord, encourage us this day with your word, for we are your people and we uh seek you first above all things in jesus name amen well did you hear that strong wind blowing on new year's eve it was that giant corporate sigh of relief as 2020 was passing away right but we cannot forget the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety during those months we were locked down businesses even churches closed nationwide homeschooling even colleges unprecedented i think millions of jobs lost and nearly every event canceled or postponed some never to be held again not to mention the threat of the virus itself as it drew ever close to us as a raging California 
wildfire scorching the earth. And so we waited, you remember, we waited impatiently, clinging to the words, watching our TVs, listening to the so-called experts, longing for some resolution, perhaps from the promised vaccine, because it was clear the answer was not within us. We felt helpless. We were helpless. And now we are limping forward in 2021, and yet in just the first two weeks of this new year, we are already insecure as to what lies ahead. The only thing that's clear, at least to me, and perhaps to you, is that the world is unraveling faster than a ball of yarn in a litter of kittens. Well, in the background of the book of Hebrews is the Levitical system established by Moses according to uh, the command of God. Because of human weakness, it was established. Because of sin, which the law revealed to be a problem so massive that we could not resolve it ourselves. We were helpless against our own sin. And that downward spiral began just as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden. So though the law revealed sin, God gave Israel this sacrificial system to show that sin could be forgiven. The problem is that old system involved, as the author says, men in their weakness, men who themselves were sinners, whose own sin needed to be forgiven. And so it begged for one not subject to human weakness. In other words, it, it begged for a better priest bringing a better hope. In other words, a better covenant. We needed a true deliverance from the mess that we're in. And so that brings us to the first two verses. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Just think on that for a moment. We have such a high priest. Of all the things that you don't have, and that I don't have. We have such a high priest. This superior ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, prophesied for over so many years is our present possession. No more waiting. He has come. He is here with us. The prophets and the patriarchs, they, they longed to see. They spoke of this coming ministry, this coming Messiah. But we have him, this greater hope we so desperately need. I want you to notice the two affirmations in verses 1 and 2, one and two I just read. One, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And two... He is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, 
not man. How great thou art indeed. So first, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, uh, throne of the majesty in heaven. What does this mean that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty? You know, maybe after, you know, a long, hard day of work, you go home and you sit down in your lazy boy chair and you rest. We babysit our grandson last night. Our kids went out to anniversary dinner and he about wore me out in like one hour. He's two. So I said, I gotta sit down. <laughs> right? No, that's not what this is about. We get a clue from Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 23. Let me read that. Lots of scripture today. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he, notice the accomplishment of what he just spoke of, our redemption, when he raised him from the dead, and that, of course, his ascension is assumed here, and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in the heavenly places. Now listen. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ligonier Online said this, Ligonier Ministries, to say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father is to say, as John Calvin explains in his Institutes, great book, that Christ was invested with lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered into possession of the government committed to him and that he not only entered into possession once for all but continues in it until he shall come down on judgment day. Okay, so the author's been telling us essentially that Jesus is once for all redemption. He uses that phrase, once for all, multiple times. What he did for us, the church, once for all, is a completed and accomplished and final reality for those who have faith in Jesus, those who believe the gospel and turn away from idols and sin, okay? It's a fully accomplished reality. It's to die. And so, having risen and ascended, Jesus is now seated as the victorious priest king at the Father's right hand. And so Paul could boldly say, you know this verse, there is therefore now, in light of Christ's once for all redemption, there is therefore now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? The sin of believers will never condemn them ever again. Again, we have such a high priest, one whose victory is complete and one who has given us his victory. So we are also victorious, right? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, the second of the two affirmations is in verse 2. He is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. So again, he's distinguishing between the old, the old of the you know, days of Moses and Levites, and Jesus. Now, you know that the Levites ministered in a, it's called a, a brick-and-mortar temple, right in Jerusalem you could go up to it you could see it you could go up to it you could you could feel it you could see how strong it was you could go inside it perhaps it was visible but Christ priesthood is in the new tent in the true tent in the very presence of the majesty in heaven now why is that important well because Jesus is not a stranger to heaven he is not someone who has no right to enter it himself. No, he ascended to his Father in heaven, and he now resides there as a son, as the son. And now he welcomes his brethren into his home. See, I cannot enter your home where I am not a resident and welcome others into your home, right? But I can welcome you into my home because I reside there as owner, as a resident. It's my home, okay? You see what I'm saying? So this true tent is the final greater priestly and redemptive reality spoken of by the prophets. It has arrived. It's imperative, uh, brethren, that we understand that the Old Testament is filled with, with types and shadows, things which were given to prefigure and look forward to the New Testament realities. In other words, things like the temple, the sacrifices, uh, the land itself, Jerusalem, circumcision, all these were temporary type, types given to prefigure the reality that would come in Jesus Christ. That's what the author said. He said, these serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The visible things serve the invisible realities. And now that the reality has come, the temporary has passed away, or the author would say it becomes obsolete. So there's no, there's no further need for an earthly Jerusalem or an earthly temple. All those former things have passed away. Not for some parenthetical church age but they've passed away forever in fact in revelation 21 john speaks of no temple in this city for its temple is the lord god almighty and the lamb so, so those who think we're to go back someday to a temple and animal sacrifices and some land on the coast of the mediterranean are are seriously mistaken that's obsolete why because the reality has come. Think of a, of a 3D scale model of a building, a church or a skyscraper or something that is about to be constructed. And you can go up and it's 
it's a kind of a small little thing, right? And you can see 3D, you can kind of see what it's going to look like and the shapes and so forth. But once that building is constructed, that model is what? Useless. Toss it in the garbage. It's, it's of no use anymore. That's what we have. The reality has come. The building, as it were, that Jesus built. And so in verses 3 through 6, he continues his argument for the superior ministry of Jesus. And the first statement in verse 5 is a repeat of something he said earlier on in chapter 5. A statement of what the law required, that the priests had to bring sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. They couldn't come with empty, they just couldn't walk in to the temple or the tabernacle and come with empty hands. They had to bring a sacrifice, and a sacrifice in accordance with the word of God, right? They couldn't come with empty hands. They had to have something to offer. And so if Jesus is a priest, the author is saying, well, he also has to have something to offer to God. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And remember, this was a bit of a problem for these believers because they wanted a visible minister and a visible ministry. They wanted Christ, but they wanted Judaism too. But that's impossible, as the author shows. He states that clearly in verse 4. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Because why? The law restricted the priesthood to what tribe? Levi. And Jesus was from what tribe? Not Levi, but Judah. Right. So he couldn't be an earthly priest. In fact, go back and search the Gospels and find the time when Jesus offered a sacrifice on earth in the temple. He didn't. Right? Never went on the Day of, day of Atonement and took his day in the his place in the temple. He didn't do that because he had no place among the sons of Aaron. Where was his place of sacrifice? Outside Jerusalem. Outside the city. On a hill called Golgotha. Where he offered up his own body. His own self. As the Lamb of God. Slain for sinners. Slain for the sins of his people. Now, just before this, the author had spoken about Melchizedek, right? From Psalm 110. And the psalmist there would not have spoken of another priesthood if, in fact, that existing priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, brought about perfection. But because it could not bring perfection, another priest was needed. Because the people broke that covenant, a new covenant was needed. You see, all along, all along, if I could put it in these words, Judaism was destined to become Christianity. Judaism was the shadow. Christianity, the Christian faith, is the fulfillment or the reality. The old was never meant to be permanent. Never. Not from the beginning was it meant to be permanent. And the author shows that by quoting Jeremiah 31, this prophecy of the new covenant. Redemptive history was always intended to progress, okay, from the old to the new, from the shadow to the fulfillment. And that means redemptive history is never going back. 
You know, once you have that new building, right, that you walk into and you walk into the rooms and you can use the facilities, not the, you know, all the, all the facilities, okay? Sorry. But those two. You're not going to go back to that little 3D scale building, are you, and try to, you know, sneak your way into that thing, right? It's in the trash. It's gone. It's obsolete. The new has come. So let's address the question, what is new about the new covenant? Because this is the first of two times in this book that the author is going to quote from Jeremiah 31, chapter 8, and then also in chapter 10. And both, it's the same larger context and same argument. He's addressing the perfection of the new versus the imperfection of the old. And he does that to persuade these doubting believers um, he wants to show them that Jeremiah 31, long time ago, one of the great prophets of uh, Israel, he speaks about something new. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. So once again, that's what the author's been teaching. The old has passed away, the new has come. Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, has brought in this new covenant. In fact, he says that God himself found fault. It wasn't like Jeremiah said, man, this is not looking so good. God himself found fault with this old covenant, and he planned to replace it, okay, as he's been saying in Psalm 110. But here's where we need to be so careful. We are not to think of two covenants of grace. The old and the new are not two covenants of grace. The Westminster Standards rightly speak of one covenant of grace and two administrations. I just want to refer you briefly to larger catechism 33 and 35. The covenant, this is not the word of God, but this is our standards and these are helpful. The covenant of grace, notice how that's singular, the covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations, plural, of it under the old covenant were different from those under the new. And then this is uh, 35. Under the New Testament, when Christ, was, Christ the substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was and still is to be administered in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which the grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. So Jeremiah 31 does not speak of a new covenant that is completely distinct from the old. It speaks of the reality or the substance that has arrived in Christ the priest king. It's new in that it has replaced the old. There's a couple different words uh, for new in the Greek language. And this word that he used does not mean new in time or, or novel or recent. That's a different word, uh, neos. The author uses the word kainos, which doesn't refer to time, but quality. It refers to something that is distinctly superior. And you find it in phrases like the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the new heart. 
In Revelation 21.5, the Lord said, Behold, I'm making all things new. So they refer not to time, but to something which is distinctly superior. And so the old becomes old. Why? Because it's inferior and it's been replaced by the superior. And so the old then becomes obsolete. To use a more modern example, as when the DVD replaced the VHS tape. They both were sort of the same thing, you know? They were similar, they both recorded movies or shows and you could, you could replay them, right? Or you could go to a, a, a blockbuster, if you remember what that was, which has also been replaced by something else, streaming. And uh, it was replaced by, the, by the, the, the DVD, replaced the VHS because it was superior and the VHS became obsolete. When we were moving from our house a few years ago, we took a bunch of VHSs we had and, and gave them away for free to a, a bookstore, uh, the library down in Whitesburg. And they said, we don't want them. We can't even give them away for free. So in the trash, because they're obsolete, right? So Jeremiah prophesied of this day when the old order will transition to the new. And the author is saying, this day has come in Christ. It's here, it's now. So again, we have such a high priest. Beloved, that should be for us. It is for us a total game changer. And it should, it must impact the way we live today, now. Not just in terms of knowing that we are fully and finally forgiven. That's true and that's amazing. And that's great. But also in knowing that we have a high priest who cares for us in our time of need. I've been thinking about that lately. And I've been, my time of need, I think it's been 24-7 lately. And I've been going to my high priest in prayer. And I've been affirming the fact that he is there for me as my great helper. Do you believe this? Do you know that you have a high priest who can help you out? Then live as those who have his victory and ask his help. But furthermore, as one seated at the Father's right hand with his enemies, listen to this carefully, with his enemies under his feet, the church, the people of God, continue boldly in the mission of Christ, in spite of any hostilities, in spite of a pandemic, because Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand and he is enthroned as the King of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, as the Messiah, he is carrying out the mission of the kingdom of God. To go back to that Ligonier uh, article I read and quoted from earlier, Ligonier, they said, we are not waiting for Jesus to enter into his messianic reign. He enjoys it now. All of his enemies are being put under his feet as his gospel is preached and his kingdom expands. Amen? Beloved, we do live 
in troubled times. We have lived through troubled times and we live in troubled times. And while we hope 2021 will be better, you know, we breathe that sigh of relief on New Year's Eve, but we really can't be sure, can we? I, for one, believe that some dark days are coming. One author I'm currently reading, I just got this book recently and started reading. It was just published last year during the pandemic. And he believes there is a, what he calls a soft totalitarianism coming. And I think the last week or two have proven that he's right. He wrote, I just, this is one extract from the book, but it's ominous. The parallels between a declining United States and a pre-revolutionary Russia about 100 years ago are not exact, but they are unnervingly close. I have a niece who's a, quite a brilliant college student, North Carolina, and so we were chatting the other day and I, I asked her about you know her friends, or at least her generation, and she said, yeah, my generation are, are running headlong after Marxism. They're becoming Marxist. And so the world is unraveling, and we may suffer in this corrupt world. But here is our confidence, beloved. The new covenant promises, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We know that in Christ we are forgiven, and we are helped, and that his kingdom mission will press on boldly and successfully. And so Paul says, we don't lose heart. So we don't lose heart because this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look ahead, previews of coming attractions, as it were. Chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming back. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So it turns out we're still waiting. We're waiting for his next coming. When Christ will come in glory to vanquish his enemies. Christ is coming again. Because the son who ascended to the father's house will return in victory and glory as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And all sin and all evil will be banished, and even death itself, the Bible says, will be swallowed up in victory. I love that metaphor, swallowed up in victory. And we who believe and who are faithful to the end will be welcomed into the Father's house by the Son. Do you believe this? So though we wait, we don't wait with anxiety or fear. Rather, we wait with active faith 
and joy and hope for his return. As those who don't lose heart. As those who don't despair. See, listen, even if this world is on a fast downward spiral, even if we are headed toward Marxism, evil has not won. Evil has not won. Yes, the nations rage, Psalm 2. Yes, the nations rage, but Christ is victorious. And in him, all is gained. All is not lost. All is gained. Heaven is gained for you and for me. Listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. We have. We have. Such a high priest now who has done this for us. This is the hope we have. This is the confidence in which we should be living. So you can be faithful as a believer in these days because you have a high priest who has made you, has made us God's own people. And he is the highest and most supreme king who helps you. And his victory over evil is certain because he is now seated at the Father's right hand and he is over all things and he is putting even his enemies under his feet. You have such a high priest. Live in this confidence. This is the hope that we have. Amen. Oh, Lord God, forgive us for our weak faith. Give us even faith as a mustard seed. Give us uh, understanding of your word and confidence in that word that we might live as befits believers, that we might live in hope and confidence and joy and peace with active faith, boldly doing your will as a church and as families and individuals because we have such a high priest. We have this hope as the people of God. How can we say thanks for such news, for such a message, for such a hope? Let us just live as your people faithfully in Jesus. Amen.